Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Joanna Quigley. Dr. Quigley is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan. She has also been on faculty at the University of Pittsburgh and trained in pediatrics, general psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Kentucky. She engages in a number of collaborative efforts to support mental health care in the primary care setting, the care of children with chronic illness and mental health care needs, as well as for adolescents struggling with substance use. Dr. Quigley serves as a consulting child psychiatrist for the Michigan Child Collaborative Care, or MC3, program at the University of Michigan, providing outreach support to primary care pediatric, family medicine, and obstetric providers across the state of Michigan. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Quigley. Hi, Joanna. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Leah. Really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy person. So we'll just hop right in. I know that you are triple boarded in pediatrics, general psychiatry, and child psychiatry, which means that you had a very long residency. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you you know, made those decisions to be a child psychiatrist. Yeah, sure. So I would say I spent medical school very open to pursuing any number of specialties, always had an interest in um, the way the mind worked and the brain, uh, but wasn't sure that I would necessarily land in psychiatry. And actually in my fourth year of medical school, in the midst of doing a med-peds kind of away rotation with the belief I might do primary care pediatrics or medicine pediatrics training, really came back to thinking about psychiatry in a very serious way based on patients we were taking care of in the hospital. And I also was lucky enough to meet a woman named Marilyn Powell, who's at the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, who had done her own triple board training herself at Johns Hopkins. So I really started to research this uh, kind of training because it, I didn't even know it existed, but it allowed for somebody to train in a comprehensive way uh, in terms of doing the medical side, quote-unquote, of pediatric training, as well as the mental health um, and brain science side of psychiatry training. So the program I went to was at the University of Kentucky, which was one of the original pilot programs, which is probably at least 20 years old now. Uh, And it involves training as you would in medicine and pediatrics, combined training for two years in pediatrics. And then the rest of your time is primarily spent in the general psychiatry and child psychiatry training. But one of the big keys for my training program was that we had a primary care continuity clinic for five years, and that was in a, a medical home model. So it was at a site 
that was really centered around comprehensive multidisciplinary care and had an embedded psychologist, dental care available, social work support. And that really was where I probably saw some of my most complicated cases from a mental health standpoint in terms of taking care of kids um, and has still has an impact on me today. Wow. I, at one point I got really interested in behavioral health and um, as a pediatrician, you know, it's three years and I thought, well, maybe I'll do a child psychiatry residency and found out I would get one year credit for peds and then was going to have to do another four years. I was like, nah, I'm not going to go back and I can do enough mental health as a primary care person. So um, I admire you. I know that's a, a long training period. And I do think, and, you know, again, from your training perspective that when I went to an American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry meeting, ACAP, I was struck by how differently child psychiatrists think than pediatricians. And I'm not sure why I would be so surprised, but, you know, we both take care of kids and, you know, we see lots of things in primary care. So talk a little bit about, you know, what's the difference between you know, the pediatric perspective and the child psychiatry perspective? Yeah, so in some ways, it's difficult for me to tease out completely because I've trained in both worlds. However, I think a big uh, difference is the fact that child psychiatry is considered a subspecialty of general psychiatry. So most people who train in child psychiatry have trained in adult psychiatry and then do this as a, a specialty training area. And Of course, with general pediatrics, you go right into general pediatric training from your medical student years. So I think from the standpoint of thinking about disease course and developmental course of illness, a child psychiatrist started with learning about what these things look like in the adult patient. Um, And then they learn all about child presentations of disease, but they also spend a lot of time learning about the developmental aspects of the presentation of behavioral disturbance in childhood, as well as, you know, the more typical anxiety and depression, ADHD kind of patient presentations. In pediatrics, there's so much to cover in those three years. There really seems to be a lot of inconsistency with how deep a particular person's training is able to be in terms of mental health understanding. And while I think that now there is a bigger emphasis on what what residents learn in peds in terms of developmental pediatric training, there are still some gaps in terms of how to think in a more developmental framework about childhood mental health and behavioral health presentations. And I think that is where some of the gap comes from. I think naturally there's also a gap in terms of very much a disease medical model being so emphasized in general pediatric training and the models in psychiatry being more nuanced. Well, and I think much of child behavioral health is on the job training for pediatricians. And I do feel like pediatricians are pretty well versed in ADHD because, I mean, I trained a long time ago, and I think that was really the only mental health training I had. We really didn't even talk about anxiety and depression, but I'm I'm old enough to be pre-Prozac, so the choices were limited. I mean, tricyclics and, you know, Haldol. And so we didn't really have treatment options. And I believe that with those treatment options, it sort of opened up the possibilities that, you know, perhaps pediatricians 
we're going to treat because these kids come to us first. And of course, then it's hard to find child psychiatrists sometimes, and particularly in our rural areas. And so, you know, we were kind of go it alone. So out of that, I at one point got a Facebook message from Sheila Marcus, who's a child psychiatrist at the University of Michigan. And she said, hey, we're doing this project. Would you be interested? And um, I was so bowled over. I mean, it was just so random that we would meet that way. And so she started talking about this Michigan child um, collaborative care model that was based on a model out of Massachusetts where pediatricians and child psychiatry could have phone conversations same day, which really blew me away. Like, really? I was like hoping, you know, if I could talk to you in two weeks, I would have been happy. But we could talk same day to a colleague like we would with other specialists and that you would help us. And and I just, I couldn't believe that that was an option. So out of that, MC3 was developed. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about your team Yeah, Sheila Marcus and a cohort of uh, staff here are really the ones who deserve credit for getting it off the ground with the collaboration of folks like you. And it is developed into a five day a week consultation service to the state of Michigan. We provide consultation to primary care providers, uh, and that includes OB-GYN, midwifery, uh, family medicine, uh, and pediatrics in the care of uh, individuals up to the age of 26 for our pediatric and young adult population. And then we will um, provide consultation for older patients in our perinatal consultation model. So the idea of this model is to really help with addressing concerns that are coming into the primary care office that either can't wait for psychiatric consultation, uh, which may be several months away, or perhaps could actually be managed very effectively in the primary care provider's office. So we get a range of requests during these calls from what do you think is going on to what do you think is the next medication I can try to I'm not sure there's much more we can do. Where should I go next with this patient? Uh, And, you know, we find that providers, as you say, particularly in the rural parts of the state, are managing extremely complex cases on their own with no formal psychiatric training. And our hope and belief is that we're offering uh, support to the providers and also a bridge in terms of the patient's care um, because we understand the limitations of access to care, particularly in those areas of the state. One of the things that made such a difference to me Uh, was that Sheila, Dr. Marcus, really validated that what I was doing was difficult. I mean, she would say, I cannot believe the complexity of these patients that you're managing and you're not a psychiatrist, but you've, you know, it's sort of like I play one in real life and, you know, with trepidation. Mm -hmm. I would have to say that with MC3, my like prescribing habits completely changed. I was, I believe, using medications that were probably not necessary Mm -hmm. to the degree that I thought they were and that there were other treatment options that were easier, safer, more comfortable for me to use. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that truly came because I was educated and could talk with someone that would help me along. And there are other models like this across the country. I don't know if every state is lucky enough to have one. Um, Do you know about that? 
Yeah, so many, many more states now have uh, a version of this program, and there's a national collaborative across the country of all of these programs in order to try and sort of um, learn from one another and try and leverage each other's resources and models, particularly when it comes to, you know, how do we fund and how do we maintain programs like this? Because, of course, there are not that many child psychiatrists when you look nationally, and how do you find the time and, and cover the time to get this sort of level of of comprehensive consultation. And we hear frequently from providers what you're saying that even just having someone to speak to who validates how challenging this is, is a big a big help. Primary care providers are providing the bulk of mental health care uh, to our kids and our the adults in our communities, and um, they do not have enough tools to do it as, as, or as well as they should be able to. So if a pediatrician from another state is listening, how would they find out if there was a program like this in their state? So I would encourage them to contact their state organization uh, for their primary professional organization, whether that's, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics or similarly with family medicine or internal medicine. And the key words to usually look for are, you know, telephone consultation programs, collaborative care consultation programs, um, psychiatric uh, collaborative consultation. Those are the main words that are used um, when these programs are developed. And very frequently, there is some level of involvement from the state government, at least initially. So sometimes the state health departments are a nice point of access for somebody inquiring about a program like this. And certainly, you know, our program has helped others uh, around the country in terms of thinking about how to start a program, run a program. And again, that's why this national cohort group is really important to sustaining these nationally. One of the other things I was going to ask you about is perhaps some of the common questions that you get. I do think uptake of the use of the program is, um, I think pediatricians are maybe worried that if I use this service, somehow I have to assume more responsibility for their care because you all are not prescribing, you're, you're making recommendations, right. and I may not be comfortable with that. And if I call you and ask you, now I'm expected to help. I mean, the bottom line is these kids still have needs, right. and either they go unaddressed or we take the leap and do that, but with you holding our hand. Right. What are What are some of the common questions that you get and maybe some just brief recommendations you could offer us? Yeah. So, you know, I, we frequently get the calls. This patient was just, just just discharged from the hospital. They're on all these medications. I don't really know why. Do they make sense to you? Um, and so, you know, walking through a list of medications, what the indications might be, and how long staying on a particular medication would make sense, I think is, a, is not an uncommon one that we get. We very frequently get asked about, you know, I've tried X, Y, and Z stimulant medication for ADHD, and this kid is just still struggling. What should I be doing next? And that is often best addressed by kind of looking at, okay, at least in my own practice, when I speak to folks in MC3, what could I be missing? So am I missing an anxiety disorder? Am I missing a mood disorder? I think we all underestimate the impact cognitively of anxiety and depression and mood. And they may look like ADHD by all accounts, but then when we really delve in, there's actually something more. We know that, you know, for example, anxiety disorders and ADHD are highly comorbid. And at least, you know, a third of kids with 
an ADHD diagnosis will likely meet criteria for an anxiety disorder diagnosis as well. Another series of questions we often ask providers is around trauma history because kids who've experienced trauma will often look dysregulated in a way that will look like, for example, a hyperactive ADHD presentation. And stimulants may actually make these kids more irritable, more distressed, have you know, a harder time managing their emotions, and they sort of unmask what, you know, maybe the the family wasn't bringing to the table or the kid had not shared with the family yet. Uh, And really addressing the trauma helps this kid manage uh, school more effectively and navigate life more effectively. I think too, um, we all as providers get comfortable using a certain set of medications. So sometimes that ADHD question is as simple as, well, you know, there's this brand that sometimes I try in cases like this when a kid has struggled more with mood or struggled more with their appetite. And, you know, those are nice um, sort of simple conversations to have in a way, because really it's just introducing a provider to kind of broadening their armamentarium, so to speak, of an ADHD medication. Um, We get a lot of questions about, is this patient bipolar or do they have bipolar disorder? And that, of course, is very difficult to tease out in a comprehensive way over the phone. But talking through the fact that children with ADHD do exhibit some mood dysregulation and irritability as part of ADHD, or that kids who are anxious and go through sort of intense moments in the day, in their day where their mood is very irritable or may seem to quote, go up and down again really quickly is not, you know, consistent or diagnostic necessarily of a bipolar disorder. And also talking through the fact that I think in society, words get thrown around so casually. And uh, when someone isn't sure how to deal with a person's behavior, they might say, oh, well, they just must be bipolar or something. So really talking through what exactly is going on and what is most distressing to the family, what's most distressing to the child um, can help providers feel more confident when their gut's saying to them, I don't think this is quite what's going on, but I'm not quite sure how to talk about it. Yeah, and I... I what I often hear is more clarifying questions from from you guys when I've called that often is helpful. Sometimes I feel unprepared, like, oh, I didn't even think about that. But I think that's the whole point of it is that you are, again, have this different way of looking at it. The trauma piece, I think also um, autism, because it is not always clear cut. I think the severe autistic kids were pretty good at identifying, but it's those with nuances. I had a kid the other day and I was like, huh, you know, something, something's up here and could it be? And so I think um, you guys have really helped me broaden my assessment and thought around what could this be? I like your uh, discussion about trauma and there've been some other guests on the podcast that have talked a lot about you know, what trauma looks like and that that oppositional behavior and throwing chairs at school is not necessarily ODD, which is a diagnosis I hate. I, to mm-hmm. me, it's just a set of symptoms and mm-hmm. that the, somehow saying ODD doesn't give me any idea about etiology. Right. Yeah. So, nor do I feel like it's very helpful at guiding medication. So I think sometimes it's symptom relief right. that that is helpful. And one of the things I that pediatricians and perhaps other primary care folks struggle with is 
if I send a kid to five different child psychiatrists, I might get five different regimens. Mm -hmm. And I'm not always sure I get the nuance of that, like with the SSRIs. You know, why would you choose Lexapro over Prozac? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I get comfortable with, you know, like you said, these are my first go-tos. Right. Not necessarily because I have some brilliant insight about why those two, but I'm comfortable with them and they work generally. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think you could start with probably any of the SSRIs and have a good shot at it. Am I thinking about that right? Does that sound true? Yeah. So I think there are some best practice guidelines in terms of, you know, selecting particular medications um, at first, and then which medications do we go to after we see treatment failure? I think when you refer out and you're kind of wondering why do they go with this one or another one, there could be many, many reasons. At times, a family may present to the psychiatrist and present other elements of the history that don't get shared with you as the primary care provider. And we'll hear about, oh, I did, you know, as the parent, the parent did terribly on Zoloft and they're worried that their child will will not have a good response. Or we learn about um, other family elements of the family history that maybe don't come out in terms of family history of bipolar illness or mood disorders. Generally speaking, there is a kind of set of SSRIs that most of us will use when we're addressing sort of major depressive disorder or anxiety disorders. And you are likely to get a fairly similar response between each of those. Certain providers have preferences when there is, quote, more anxiety versus more depression in the presentation. Certain providers may feel there are fewer side effects with a certain brand rather than another brand. But Generally, I, I tell folks, as long as you're systematic in the way you go through your medication choices and you're thoughtful about interactions with other medications and the family history, then that is a very acceptable way of sort of proceeding forward with care. And one of the tools that MC3 provided was these pharmacology cards, which was a kind of a pocket guide to meds, dosing. Um, the other book I really like, and he's a, an adult person, is Stephen Stahl through the, I think it's Neuroeducational Institute, NEI Global, and he wrote on Essentials of Psychopharm. And it's the the nicest book in terms of clinical pearls and how to wean. And, and again, I think it's directed mostly at adults, but the meds are described pretty well. I found that to be really helpful. Um, So those guidelines have been really useful. You mentioned before when kids are on multiple meds from somebody else. So often we get kids out of the CMHs and on polypharm. And I think that's super challenging. Like, do we just continue with these? Do we stop them? Um, So those are some challenges for us. Uh, the best practice guidelines you mentioned, is that something that pediatricians can access that you all have somewhere? Yeah, so there are a number of ways to find resources. As a pediatrician, the American Academy of Pediatrics spent a lot of time putting together a mental health toolkit, uh, I believe around 10 years ago. And there are resources available as a, a member of the AAP through the website. Our personal MC3 program has a lot of resources, like you say, the uh, website contains those psychopharm cards as well as lectures. And a lot of the uh, national state level programs that we are aware of nationally 
have a tremendous number of resources on their websites. The family medicine professional organizations do a really nice job of, of publishing their guidelines. And the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry also publishes guidelines regularly on best practice for specific um, disorders. So they are all great places to look. Are those ACAP guidelines accessible? I know one of the things that I believe are free and accessible to anyone are the facts for families on the ACAP site, which I think are really nice guidelines. So are some of those other materials accessible without necessarily being an ACAP member? Yes, I believe they are. And I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I believe they are. Okay. Yeah, I've found those particularly facts for families and um, descriptions of disorders and medications and that have been helpful. And even you can download them and give them to families as a nice resource. Um, And the healthychildren.org, Leah from American Academy of Pediatrics, um, you know, I think is a really wonderful toolkit too. They have the, you know, everything from how to write a letter regarding an IEP or 504 plan to um, a lot of great behavioral health um, tip sheets for families, as well as, you know, their media, um, family media plan tool, which I like to reference where a family can really sit down and personalized sort of media time for each child in the household and post that on the fridge and have sort of a neutral zone about here are the rules for our family about screen time. Um, So I think it's a wonderful resource too. Man, if you could bottle that one up, I mean, parents are forever saying, you know, he wants to be on his iPad all the time. And I ask how many hours a day? Mm, Six. and, And really feel like they don't have any control over that as is almost like an addiction. And when they try and, you know, regulate that, the kids go ballistic. And, you know, so there's this big parent avoidance. I mean, I often tell the parents, you know, you're paying for this and they can only have access if you give that to them. But I'm not sure that that's always helpful enough. But I do feel like parents sometimes maybe abdicate a little bit to kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, gosh, we're in very, very challenging times when it comes to screen time and media management. I would say it's next to impossible for a lot of parents who are managing work and trying to keep their their child educated. Uh, I do think that, you know, I never want to judge what's going on in a household, but I also want to empower parents that it is okay to set limits, that kids thrive on structure and consistency with expectations, and that even though there may be a really hard week or two with the younger kids, for example, that kids will adjust to saying, you know, these are actually now our rules about, you know, when you can access the iPad or when you can and be on your phone, et cetera. Common Sense Media has a lot of great tips for parents about how to, you know, give your kids freedom, but also from a safety standpoint, regulate what they're accessing. I know a lot of the new devices have um, updated technology and better ways for parents to manage that. But I also think sometimes when you're in the thick of trying to manage day-to-day life, you forget things like, oh, I could turn the Wi-Fi off at nighttime, you know, like that's okay to do. And I can go to bed and not worry that they're getting back on their games. Um, So sometimes, you know, I need to be the bad cop and say, it's okay to set limits and say that in front of their child and say, this is what I think would be ideal. And, and working towards that in your own household in a way that works 
is going to be better off for you and everybody else. Yeah, being that bad guy is really hard sometimes, but I agree. And you, you said it much more, much more nicely about rather than parents sort of giving up in that you're empowering them and validating again that this is hard. And I, again, with the whole COVID and kids doing virtual school, they're, they're on devices all day long and trying to encourage, you know, time off and time outside and that kind of thing are things that we can do. I like the suggestion about turning off the Wi-Fi. I, think that that's probably one that would engender like retaliate well not retaliate revolution perhaps um and you know kids that are on the spectrum boy that's hard because those kids are so engrossed in electronics and sometimes that's the only break that families get from and I some would of say the too behaviors. that now it's also a um a way to connect socially so I think that's a really important piece to tease out when you're talking to families about how media is being used and how devices are being used is what are the pro-social elements of what's going on and how can we support the positives um, and not be too punitive, but also set appropriate limits in terms of the length of time they're on a device and how it's being used. So Now you sound like a pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just wondering if you have any words or pearls for pediatricians about collaborating with you all. I, I know in the past, I really had a hard time um, contacting a psychiatrist. There was never any true, like, you know, um, I want to hear what you have to think, you know, you have to say, um, or feedback. I would never get a report. I think that's gotten much better. Mm -hmm. And certainly with MC3, I mean, you guys send us a report. But if I have a kid who's seeing a psychiatrist, especially if it's a private psychiatrist, I may never see anything other than the parent saying, you know, here's the bottles. And I do think it makes a difference for us to be in the loop on that. I um, went to a REACH Institute conference years ago with Peter Jensen and just said, you know, I'm struggling. How do I make contact? And he said, when you get back to your community, invite everybody you know to the table and start there. And so I did. And and then I just started reaching out to people and that, that helped a lot. It took some energy to do, but yes. how, how do you facilitate that collaboration? I think it takes being intentional and it takes time. And I think the second part of that is something that's very precious for all of us, no matter what our practice looks like. I try and be transparent with families when I meet with them that for me, collaboration with the primary care provider is very important and that I will be mailing them, you know, letters and updates as we go along in our course of care. And I think laying that that framework or groundwork from the beginning is very important. I also think it helps in destigmatizing what I am doing and saying that, you know, this is not separate from your medical care insofar as this is, you know, fundamental to the care of your child, in a, you know, overall. Um I do try and pick up the phone when I'm really worried. I take advantage of, you know, email when it's HIPAA compliant, I'm able to do it safely. Just as challenging as it can be to communicate with other uh, physicians can be connecting with therapists because that's also very challenging with schedules, et cetera. If I think about something to share with providers about how to collaborate, I think first of all, in terms of using something like a consultation program to never believe that your question is too small or too insignificant. You know, 
that's why we're here. Uh, and we do want to have these conversations and a big part of our mission and part of what we really enjoy about our work is the chance to educate and to have a conversation which maybe prevents you from having to call us the next time that you're going to feel confident on your own kind of making a decision and managing something. Anytime that you have a chance to get that extra bit of information or extra bit of history always helps round out the information that we're receiving and what we have to work with in order to give you our best judgment, our best advice. And also to not hesitate to come back and say, you know, what you said didn't work. Can I talk to you again? And that's really, really important too, to not think that, you know, what we say has to be the only way that a problem can be solved. So I like that with the consultation service, I have the opportunity to share what I know about the family. Some of these kids I've known since birth. So I've got a lot of information that is helpful to you. And then of course, you to me, and I have never felt stupid asking a question when I've called you guys. And that means a lot because that has not always been my experience. I mean, in the past, I've felt that some psychiatrists, you know, were judging me because I was prescribing and yet they wouldn't see the kid because they, for whatever reason, couldn't. So I'm stuck. I'm, I shouldn't be doing the prescribing, but I should be taking care of the kid and I'm doing it by myself. So I, I believe that a lot of pediatricians, you know, we're, we're doing our best with limited resources and having these, you know, consultative services is a huge load off. And the more that we can have those relationships, the better. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of us would be like, could you see this kid and then just take care of him forever so I don't have to? Because it's, you know, it's time consuming. Yeah, you don't have the time oftentimes and the visit lengths that you're allowed and the pressures of, of reimbursement. The other thing too that I often say is to validate, you know, you don't need to solve everything that's going on in one visit that I certainly wouldn't be able to, and no one would be able to. And that sort of reframing it for the provider that pick the highest yield thing to address with the patient the next time you see them or when you call them back after you and I talk and then really frame it as we're going to continue working together, but that you can't solve everything in one at, at one go, so to speak. And it's going to be a process. And I usually try and tease out very much that way you know, what's more important is the, you know, behavioral stuff, sort of the ADHD behavior is an issue, or is it the anxiety, you know, or I feel like the anxiety is a bigger issue. Let's go there first. I personally only do one medication at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have had the experience sometimes of sending a kid to a psychiatrist, not MC3, but, and they came back on three different meds. And I'm like, how do I know what's working or not working? And so kind of my rule of thumb is I just do one, start low, go slow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, being systematic, have a, a method that makes sense to you and to approach each medication and constantly reflecting on, is this beneficial? Should I be thinking about when to taper this off or do I need to do something different with it? So that's always what I'm trying to remind myself of too. And the consultative services are learning support so that I don't call very often. And if I do call, it's usually a really big mess. It's a really complicated kid that often 
would benefit, honestly, from an in-person child psychiatry visit. And I know now that that's expanded, at least in the state of Michigan, that you guys are actually doing telepsychiatry in person, you know, face-to-face with the kid and family. And that is a game changer, I think. Um, it, it Not that you're, again, prescribing, but now you have even that more insight and that helps me help you help me. Absolutely. Yes. So that is another service and I'm sure other states have that. The other resource that might be helpful for folks to find out what's available is to see if there's an ACAP chapter in their state. We actually had a joint conference with um, our ACAP and AAP in the state of Michigan. And that was really fun because I, there are some things that on the PED side that I think psychiatrists benefit from. Um, Oftentimes we're asked to manage like hyperlipidemia that, you know, if you start say, you know, risperidone and Mm -hmm. somebody asks me to, would you manage their metformin or um, Mm -hmm. the thyroid levels went up and could you manage that? Now, sometimes that's hard if we don't have a really tight relationship Yeah, to not feel like that's a dump. I, you know, um, yeah, but I, you know, I think I'm happy to help, particularly if we have a nice two way. Yes. Yeah. And for many children, if they do see a child psychiatrist, the child psychiatrist is seeing them more often than you would be in in the pediatric office. So um, they do end up carrying a lot of the more, you know, continuity of care and more knowledge about the kid. And I was talking to another child psychiatrist, and one of the things, you know, she said is, gosh, sometimes we would love to have, you know, a quick ear infection, something that was pretty simple and straightforward. Because I was sort of bemoaning like, oh, you guys get all this time. She's like, honestly, we would like some of those quick things. And, (laughs) you know, so we we each have some envy over the other. Um, And and you guys manage these really complicated patients and kind of knowing when that relationship ends and then it comes back to me. Ideally, it's nice if there is a complex kid who is you know, essentially discharged from psychiatry on medication Mm -hmm. and then they tank on my end that I can get them back in and trying to create those kind of relationships can be tricky. My, my experience has been, it's best to establish relationships with people and calling, you know, someone or meeting with them. So I know who they are and they know me. It totally changes you know, rather than, you know, this is some nebulous child psychiatrist out there who is unreachable, untouchable, and, and, and they may feel the same way about how do I get a hold of a pediatrician. Right. Yeah. So we just need to play in the same sandbox. I know. Right. And it's hard right now with COVID, but I think anything that, um, as you said, particularly you can do with your professional organizations that's collaborative is a really nice opportunity to, to meet an, a larger number of folks. So. Well, and you know, it's nice to know that um, the MC3 psychiatrists, and we, we kind of get to know who you are if we make multiple phone calls. I mean, now you're my peeps, you know, right. they're, they're my friends and colleagues, not just someone somewhere else. Yes. And, uh, you know, having those relationships is really nice, you know, so if you ask me, hey, did, what about, you know, could this be an autistic kid? It's like, oh, I hadn't, Mm-hmm. I, that one didn't occur to me. Thank you for thinking that. And then, of course, we get these written reports that often offer options. 
Mm-hmm. Like you could try this. And if that didn't work, you could try this. And, and even some dose recommendations, that's helpful. Yeah. So it's been a great partnership and I hope it becomes something that's available everywhere. There, There's just no way that there's going to be enough of you to see every kid that's struggling. No. And particularly as we see, you know, many child and adolescent psychiatrists sort of aging out and getting nearer to retirement age, we're not replacing those folks at a fast enough rate to sort of even replace our current coverage nationally. So I think we really all have to embrace these collaborative models that, like you said, do feel scary sometimes, but um, that we can support each other to take care of these kids. I like the idea that it's okay for us to call more than once about a kid. And I've never felt... Um, you know, like, oh, we already did that and we can't talk about them again. I mean, it's always been an open door. So, you know, listeners that are in other states, I would certainly encourage you to seek out, you know, whether or not these services are available. And if not, to get involved in your AAP chapter and and contact your ACAP partners and lobby for it. Absolutely. So, well, listen, Joanna, I so appreciate your time. Is there anything else you wanted to leave us with? Um, No, thanks for having me, Leah. And I would just say, you know, we all, I think, find joy in our work with our patients, but also with our colleagues. And this is, these sorts of programs are a great way to, to have those two pieces meet. So I would encourage people to, to engage, to find out about these sorts of programs and to, to make them better too. Can't have too many friends, right? Especially when we're taking care of kids in complicated situations, the, the more help, the better. Better, better safety nets for sure. Well, listen, thanks so much and have a great day. And I, again, appreciate your time. Thank you, Leah. A big thanks and shout out to Joanna Quigley and all of her child and adolescent psychiatry colleagues. Pediatricians so appreciate you. We just wish there were more of you. Joanna has been part of the Michigan Child Collaborative Care Project at the University of Michigan, also known as MC3. The MC3 is an outreach consultive support from child psychiatry to primary care. There are many of these type of programs throughout the country. And if you haven't already found that kind of support, Joanna suggested going to your AAP chapter or AAP national to see if there is a system in place in your state. My experience is these things have been game changers for me. Before, I just felt like I was on my own. And now I have friends I can call and say, hey, I've got a kid. This is what I've been doing. It's not going well. Can you please help? And they don't make me feel stupid. They support what I do and validate that primary care is doing a really hard job and that we do most of the mental health care They give me ideas, and I can provide better care. She talked about some of the common themes that primary care providers bring up. They often struggle with medications that are prescribed before discharge for inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations, and that one of the questions that they often field is why these meds and how to manage or wean Treatment-resistant conditions comes up frequently, and primary care pediatricians often want to know, am I missing something? And she can circle back to looking at the problem really from a different lens, because 
the psychiatric training is really different than pediatric training, even though we're all taking care of children. And trauma, we really need to remember that trauma causes dysregulation that can look like oppositional behaviors, bipolar behaviors, but it might really be anxiety and that that is so common and that bipolar disorders do occur, but are less less common. One of the things that we really talked about was addressing symptom relief using best practice guidelines. Psychiatrists utilize their own practice guidelines and pediatrics has similar We can look for those resources through the AAP, the Mental Health Toolkit. There are many publications we've talked about on some of the other podcast episodes. The ACAP, American Association for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, has a really nice webpage providing facts for families that has a lot of really useful information. and You don't have to be a member to utilize those resources. The AAPHealthyChildren.org has a lot of information about media, and we talked a little bit about, you know, how parents can manage social media and how complicated that can be. Collaboration is really important, and she underscored that we need to be intentional about making those connections both ways. This takes time, and we have to obtain releases, but it's really important that we talk to each other when it comes to children's mental health needs or really all of their needs like we would do with any consultant. And then she left the parting words that consultation questions, no question is too small or too insignificant. And I would underline not too stupid. So I'm really going to suggest that you look and see what your resources are in your state and that may be really helpful in finding some help. So I will leave you with that. And again, as always, thank you for your time. I so appreciate you listening in. Please let me know if you have other suggestions for topics or speakers and take good care of yourself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.